We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer... This might be your new favorite. They're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons frozen take on a cappuccino. And it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants. This is the Gator Nation football podcast. Powered by Campus Insiders. With your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to episode 14, Gator fans. This is Alan Williams. I'm alongside James DiVirgilio. James, what do we say about this game? Uh, The word that comes to mind for me is frustration, I believe. Rough night for the Gators. Give me some overall thoughts. How are you feeling coming out of this week, buddy? Yeah, extreme frustration is the right term. To be fair, and hopefully for the listeners of the podcast, you were well prepared for this. No surprises. Yeah, you were well prepared. If you didn't listen to this podcast, you may have been hanging on to some sort of false hope that things could magically get better. But at least if you've been listening to us... When you're well-dressed, people say... Nice suit. When you're best dressed, they say, Nice suit. The JCPenney Men's Best Dressed event is happening now. Score 50% off men's select suit separate, sport coats, and dress pants from Collection by Michael Strahan, Stafford, and JFJ Farrar. And for big and tall guys, shop Shaquille O'Neal, XLG, and more. Plus, get an extra 25% off with your JCPenney credit card and coupon. JCPenney. Offers valid 912 to 918. Credit offer subject to credit approval. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. You've known that we didn't really think good things were going to happen. We thought that Treon would, would be exactly who Treon was and is. But it doesn't matter. To have to sit there and watch that game, extremely frustrating. And we talked about it last week. The entertainment value is sucked completely out of this team. 
And, and I'm now convinced, and I've said this before, and I'm just going to reiterate it again. And again, here's my personal disclaimer. This has nothing to do with any player um, as a person or what they're like off the field. This is solely a performance indicator. And there's no doubt in my mind now that Treon is the worst Gator quarterback that's donned a uniform and played any sort of significant amount of time. I mean, he's played like 13 games now. And he he is at a level that I would say is maybe freshman of at high school, technique-wise. And so I'm not going to launch back into all the things we talked about, but the footwork has not improved. The timing of his throws has not improved. He may throw the ball earlier, but it's just a hopeful throw now. And it's really almost amazing to see a guy spend this many weeks under McIlwain, who's a coaching guru, show no improvement. No improvement. And Florida State, this is a defense that gave up 500-plus yards to Clemson. Miami threw for 405 yards against them. They are a top-20 defense. They are not a great defense. They looked like they were the world's best defense against our offense. Yes, we probably should have scored maybe six points a couple of those field goals. We had great field position for a lot of the night. And, you know, to put a bow on this little this little situation, it's just extremely frustrating. You have to watch Treon get marched out there every single drive to the point to where I think I hate the number three now. Like, I see the number three out of my daily life, and I'm angry because <laughs> it reminds me of Treon running on the field, and it's like there's no hope. Please put anyone in. I don't care. Take an equipment manager off the sideline and put him in at quarterback. Let me see something different. But... Alan, we were sitting right near each other. I know by the look on your face that frustration was probably the word that was describing what was going on in the swamp. Well, it's just, you know, the fact that there's this opportunity there to pull out a big win against your rival. You know, this this is the kind of game that's you know, sticks with you a little bit and it ended up being a blowout in the end. But this the atmosphere in the swamp was electric at the beginning. People were amped. Uh, my brother in law, it was his first game. And you know what? He was really excited. And you just see him. I think it was just a microcosm of everybody's stadium. It just, it just begins to slog as we fail to move the ball over and over and over and over and over again. And he had a lot more optimism because he hasn't watched the Gators play all year. So uh, it was tough. Um, you know, that's a painful loss, hopefully, for this team. Not hopefully. Well, hopefully they feel it, but that this is a painful loss because of what could have been. Because you're right, this is not a classically good FSU team. This is not a dominant team. This is a team that is, I think, thoroughly mediocre on offense and defense. I think their statistics are a little inflated because they play in the ACC. This is a game that, you know, if we have any kind of play at quarterback, I think we win easily. Easily. Um, so that, that was tough to watch, you know, us be so... I don't know what the ultimate word is here, but the word that keeps coming to mind is incompetent. We just couldn't do anything, and that was tough. Yeah, and what adds to that frustration for me, and, and we've covered this a lot, so I'm just going to spend a moment talking about this because a lot of people have asked me this question. It continues to get brought up, which is how come someone else doesn't come into the game? And the, the coaching answer from McElwain is, and he's not saying this, but this is what it is, is that we have a guy in Grady who's not really a quarterback. He transferred from Vanderbilt. He's a graduate transfer. He played very few snaps at Vanderbilt. I would agree with him there. He's not really a quarterback. I don't think that's a guy. He's a guy who can take some snaps and like not fumble the ball. You know, yeah, he can run to. around and do some things. But he's not really going to be the guy to run Max offense. And then you have Jacob Guy, who's a walk-on. Now, look, obviously, I've been trumpeting Jacob Guy. He can come in the game and be terrible. 
according to game theory, which is well covered in the South Carolina episode, I would have put him in. I would have put him in a long time ago. In fact, we sort of predicted this happening. As soon as we played Florida State or Alabama, this is not going to work anymore. You know what you get with Treon. It is personally very frustrating for me to watch Max sort of bury his head in the sand. We know today he's sticking with Treon. Treon, who is the worst quarterback in Gator history, is going to start an SEC championship game for a 10-2 and team. It's just frustrating. I mean, to me, you start anyone else to see if they can't do something different because Treon scored zero, count them, zero points in this game last week. Nothing. Now, we did have some blown opportunities. We did have some chances in this game. We could have potentially been winning this game early. So talk to me a little bit about maybe, am I too far over here on this end? I mean, were there opportunities in this game we could have won? Is starting Treon against Bama possibly we, we convert a few more points and we're in it kind of situation? Well, there were some blown opportunities. I mean, we did have the ball in good field position, and there were moments in this game we could have gotten back into it. But, man, it seems almost impossible. Someone uh, said, you know, when you when we get the ball on the 20-yard line, you know, on our 20, and you have to put together six or seven first downs to try to score, that feels like just an impossibility. It's like you check all your scores on your test, and what do I need to get to make an A in this class? Oh, I need 148%. It's impossible. It just can't be done. You know, the best thing to happen all game was the fumble by McGuire that got batted around like crazy, ended up being the safety, of course. So nothing went right for this team on offense. Even the best thing that could have happened ended up being not that bad. And, of course, you know, then we should have had great field position after that with the kick return that comes back. So just frustration over and over again. Now, someone asked me, is this going to be the same against Bama? And I was like, well, I think it's going to be worse. And we'll get to that in the next segment. Because if you can't move the ball against Florida State, you're not going to move the ball against Florida. We have to have just total insanity next week, and I don't anticipate that happening from a Nick Saban team. So I, I think you're right. There were a few – we could have won this game just on sheer, like, luck and the power of our defense, you know, and that would have been an just amazing just pulling out of your butt kind of win. Uh, but no uh, – <laughs> When you have, as I said, when you have no quarterback and you have no kicker, it's almost impossible to generate points because you're never in field goal range and you're, you can't really put the ball in the end zone. Now, we've talked a lot about putting anybody in there except for, you know, Treon. What about Austin Harden continuing to, to take kicks for UF? It's kind of it's kind of the same thing. And, and yeah, I'm, it's very I'm glad that we get a chance to talk about it. I mean, look, again, Austin Harden, we're not saying... Austin, we hate you. You're the worst person ever. Ever, But I am saying, as a player on a team, how many times are you going to trot that guy out there to let him kick the ball straight into the line? I mean, that second field goal that was quote-unquote blocked got about three feet off the ground. Mm -hmm. How many times will that happen? Again, put anyone else in there. I mean, we have a walk-on now who they did the big recruiting pitch for, who kicked in high school, who's made several 50-plus field goals. Yes, he missed an extra point, but he's had one kick. Let anyone else kick the ball. It's kind of the same mentality. But look, McIlwain's going to put his arm around a guy. He's going to say, hey, I believe in you. He's going to talk in the press conference about how, you know, Austin's great. He's got a big leg. He's just got to figure it out. And I, and I think those are nice qualities. Like, if McIlwain's your friend, you love that guy. He's got your back. He trusts you. He's never going to blast you in public. Those are really good qualities as a person. I just wish, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that he would make some changes at some positions where we are obviously underperforming, even if the backup is not a known quantity. Just put the unknown guy in there. Just 
do anything, please. Something <laughs> at least feed yeah. us as 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 fans. Like, okay, look, I marched him out there and he still missed. Great, then I'll be calm. I'd be pacified if Jacob guys out there and we lost twenty seven two to Florida State and we couldn't move the ball. Seriously, I would be totally okay with that because you fired every bullet in your gun. But right now, I feel like we still have bullets in our gun. We're not firing them. We're not going to fire them. And I get to hear McElwain talk about how, hey, look, we're staying with Treon. Treon's our guy. We're going to clean some things up this week, which is the ultimate coach speak for, like, we're screwed. We know we're screwed. We're watching the film. We're going to lose. We've had a great season. Yeah. And I'm going to, by the way, land a huge recruit, which we'll talk about later, because he knows that we have a problem. So I'm not jumping on the future Mac, but present Mac here is a little frustrating that he does not want to pull the trigger well, on the game. He's and then as we talk about kind of the game theoriness of it, if Trion is the only possible person to play, it does you no good to come out and trash him. So from that perspective, it totally makes sense how he would handle that situation. And so there is some logic behind what he's doing. If this is really the only option, and we are we knew coming into the year that we were perilously thin at quarterback, that's the case. So just this is the hand he's dealt. As he said in the press conference, you know we knew we had to do some rebuilding on that side of the ball. So, I don't know. Uh, it looks like we're still going to have Trion at quarterback. Who knows about kicker? We'll see how that goes moving forward. Yeah, and it just, it just crushes me. It crushes me, you know. So, I was going to go to the SEC Championship this week, and I had two tickets to the game, uh, you know, on the sideline, down low, right? And I'm not going. I gave them to my brother and his friend because I'm not going to go. In fact, I also said in the stands, and I'm going to stand by this, I'm not going to go to another Gator game that Trion's the quarterback of. And that's just, there it is. It's a Treon cot. It's a boycott. It's a Treon cot. And that doesn't mean I don't support my university, but I'm not going. I'm not going to go. So I'm not going to go to the bold game. If he starts next year by some horrific nightmare scenario, I'm not going to go to any of those games until it's a different quarterback. Um, but there is a guy who's worth watching, who's had a really great season, despite just, I can't even imagine the frustrations. Kelvin Taylor. Great, great game. Yeah. Great game. He looked so good out there, um, making... Just some stuff out of nothing. We always talk about his vision and his feet. His ability to like make people miss and gain yards where there usually isn't was it's just so fun to watch. He's a great guy. And then having his dad there, Fred, you know, got a huge ovation. I was like, man, he's gonna come out and play inspired, and he did. Um, maybe the one bright spot out there, uh, you know, no Demarcus Robinson, <laughs> the up and down roller coaster that is. And so maybe Cohen's last game as a Gator. You know, if you're a running back. And you have a chance to go to the NFL, you know, you take it, you only have so many miles on those legs. And he's so. 22. Yeah. So he's, a little, he's old, a little bit older than a typical guy. So I think probably his last home game. Yeah, it depends on the part of that report he gets back from the NFL, but mm-hmm. possibly his last game. And I want to touch on one storyline here that was really interesting at the close of the game. Uh, FSU coach Jimbo Fisher called a few timeouts. You don't normally say see that when you're just. I, you would think running out the clock. I don't know. What was going on there, James? What do you think was happening? I think, and there's no way to factually confirm this, but I think and believe strongly that he was he was adding fuel to the Dalvin Cook-Heisman campaign. Uh, through three quarters of that game, Dalvin Cook averaged below five yards a carry, had a very meager stat line. I think he was at like 80 yards for maybe a touchdown at that point in time. Um, and really, even until the last drive, had a normal stat line. Um, but the defense, I think, quit. You know, there was that time when we missed Callaway wide open in the end zone, 
with a chance to still somehow with a chance to make it a one score game. That's the incredible thing about this is if we throw that touchdown pass to Callaway, you're down one score with a lot of time left. It's kind of a mind blow to think like that's even possible how bad we play, but it happened and you could just see the defense kind of came on the field and that was it. And, and look, they're heroic. We've lauded, we've applauded them and lauded them the whole year. They played fantastic in the first part. I don't game. know how they keep playing as hard as they play. It has to be incredibly frustrating to watch that, but they, they quit. They quit a little bit. I'm not going to blame them for that. You know, they were still out there trying to make plays. I mean, Gerard Davis never, never took a playoff, but yeah. there was, there's enough of a letdown. And Florida State feels like they've got the win, so they've got enough. And Dalvin take. Cook is a special player. If you're not yeah. on your toes against him, he's going to just one right. cut and go. And if you're not really dialed in, you just dial it back five percent. You're going to you're going to lose it. And so I think that that's what happened. He must have got the ball. I, I don't know, maybe eight or nine um, plays out of ten. I was surprised I think, they were giving it to him that much at first. Yeah. And so I think, do I have a problem with it? No. Uh, is he running the score up? No. I, I don't think Delvin Cook was guaranteed to score there. But I absolutely think that Jimbo Fisher, as a lot of coaches do nowadays, says, hey. It's our last game. We don't play until we have a bowl game. Um, I'm going to let him get his carries in here. I'm going to let him try to pad his Heisman stats, which he certainly did. If you're a California voter and you open up the paper because you didn't you didn't watch the game, you see Dalvin Cook's stat line now of nearly 200 yards. We have two or three touchdowns in the game now. His uh, average was at like you know seven or eight as opposed to at five. So it worked. It was a little weird at first. You're thinking, hmm, this is interesting. And then it became, I think, pretty clear that that was the Dalvin Cook show and it was a stat padding operation against a rival I don't think the Florida players were even thinking about that at that moment in time I think they were they were pretty let down that their whole season and all their goals sort of just came crashing down you know in front of them now I I don't really have a problem running up the score in a rivalry game like this now I think if you're just putting it on some hapless FCS team it's like you know dial it back a little bit but I you know I loved it when Urban Demeyer did it against Georgia so I can't really say anything I would want Jim McElwain call a few timeouts let's get an extra touchdown here so even if that's what Jimbo was doing, you know, I hated the fact that they scored again. It was a little salt in the wounds there. But I can't say I wouldn't want him to do that. That's a that's you know what? They'll stop running the ball when you start tackling them, yeah, you know, stop kind them. of thing. Yeah. Uh but that was a little strange behavior, those timeouts. I think, you know, that's potential fodder for the rivalry moving forward here. Uh either way, whether it's Dalvin Cook's stats or him calling timeouts to put an extra touchdown on the board. So any last thoughts on this game? I know this was this was a you know not a consequential loss in a lot of senses because I think the playoffs were a long shot. Mm-hmm. We're already in the SEC title game, but still a loss and a ultimately a lopsided loss to a rival hurts. You know, as I think back on it, it uh, surprise, so extreme frustration and surprise is the other side. Obviously, I came into the game sort of emotionally numb, and I think anyone who listens to the show knows that I've sort of checked out on this team's possibilities a while ago. My only hope was playing anyone else, and even that was a small hope. But like you said, the atmosphere was, I was really surprised at the beginning of the game to see how amped it was. We set a crowd a record for attendance, and that surprised me because, I mean, I came driving up from Sarasota. I was not excited about the game. I got in the stadium. I was not excited about being there. And that makes me sound like a huge Debbie Downer, but I was just sort of going through the motions because I felt like we were inevitably going to lose that game the way that we did in excruciating, mind-numbingly boring fashion. So some of my reflections are that maybe there's a lot of other people that actually thought we were going to win. And I hope they're not too crushed by this now um, because, you know, it seemed like it was coming. But the other side of that is great season in the swamp. The fans really showed up. I think next year, if we can get a guy like Luke Del Rio, who's you know obviously on the roster, but a JUCO transfer, and or Felipe Franks, who obviously committed, if we can get a guy to hold us over until we're Will Greer and or be Will Greer, I know the Swamp's going to be electric again, which is huge. 
I know Max, the long-term guy, which is huge. So I kind of end the Swamp homestand on a note of saying, you know what? I still have to watch two more games at Treon. That hurts me. But my final thought is, this is an incredible situation for us to be in because I believe very strongly where we're going. I think we have the home field advantage back. All those things are really exciting. So I think a couple years down the road, I'll reflect back on this season with just really mainly positive thoughts with the, oh, hey, if we had Will, we could have done bigger things. But this was the beginning of something great. Agreed. Um, I think it could have been a great night in the swamp. I think anytime, I think people were excited because, you know, there was at least a chance that we could beat FSU, and that's always a fun moment. Uh, instead, we had to leave hearing the war chant, which, you know, is seared in my brain for another year. Well, let's move on to our next segment. I'm excited about our guest. Um, you know, former Florida AD has a, a lot of really interesting thoughts about the state of college fo- football in general. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Welcome to the program, Bill Carr. He is a former Florida player, uh, former Florida athletic director, and the current head of Carr Sports Consulting. Carr Sports Consulting specializes in executive search and management for um, many Division One schools with regards to all sorts of athletic administration, uh, coaching searches, etc. So certainly, Bill Carr knows his way around the collegiate sports landscape. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. So, obviously, there's been a lot of unique things going on in the past weekend um, that's pretty new to the college sports landscape. You have Mark Richt, who's being fired after 15 years uh, with Georgia. You have Les Miles, who I think most people thought was essentially fired and then was brought back in the third quarter of that game. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like now to be a college athletic director and a college coach and just maybe what's going on behind the scenes when these decisions are being made? Well, the, the industry of intercollegiate athletics, and it truly is that. It, it's not a amateur endeavor. It's a, it's a professionally driven, uh, highly monetized, high-pressure, high-visibility uh, dynamic industry today. And it is, uh, uh, it is extremely difficult uh, to keep up with everything that's going on. Uh, I've been in the business for 40 years plus, and I have never witnessed a level of turbulence and uncertainty and transition and pressure uh, similar to what we've had in the year 2015. Uh, it's unprecedented, and it is extraordinarily stressful. Uh, there's one statistic that I will quote for you that I learned this morning that uh, says it all. And that is when the when Rutgers University announced yesterday that they had terminated both their athletic director and their football coach in one fell swoop. They became the fourth school in the last 13 months in the Big Ten Conference, a paragon of institutional integrity and academic credibility uh, with AAU members across the board. Every institution except Nebraska, which used to be an AAU member but lost that standing just in the last few years, but everyone else is in the AAU. But when Rutgers changed their AD and football coach uh, today or yesterday, they became the fourth Big Ten school in the last 13 months to uh, depose their AD and head football coach uh, at the same time. So you have Michigan was first, then Minnesota, and then uh, Illinois, and now Rutgers. Now that's an extraordinary toll of uh, of change 
in a, a high-level program, or I should say conference, of extraordinary integrity and, and, uh, and credibility. So that says everything about what's going on in the industry today, and it's, uh, the bodies are strewn across the board. But so be it. That's where we are because of the expectations that many people have that follow the programs. And sometimes those expectations are unrealistic. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, every time we play a game, somebody wins and somebody loses. And the cumulative effect of those losses creates the change we're talking about. So you often hear about a lot going on behind the scenes and you know a lot of factors at play. And we often also hear about very influential boosters and donors to the university having a lot of say in these kind of processes. Just how influential are these types of boosters when this kind of stuff goes on? Well, it varies uh, by institution as to how uh, intrusive, if you will, a booster will be. But the most intrusive force in college athletics in the last 50 years has been television. College uh, football and basketball, but especially football, has been driven by television exposure and revenues. And there is no single factor in my estimation over the last 50 years that has affected college football and college intercollegiate athletics overall uh, more than, than uh, television, exposure and revenue. Because the exposure brings the awareness, it brings the uh, prestige, it brings the recognition that flows not to just athletics but to the entire institution the branding of institutions today. It used to be that intercollegiate athletics was uh, the only part of the institution that had to, if you will, make its way financially and was called upon to generate revenues. But with the, uh, the attrition in state funding for, uh, for state universities, uh, the demand for all elements within the university to generate revenues through research and through corporate partnerships and other revenue streams, it's across the board. And academic offerings are affected by their ability to generate tuition dollars and other, and other revenues, uh, whether it's research or some other method of uh, revenue generation. Intercollegiate athletics uh, is joined by the entire campus uh, with regard to how and where the money comes from. So it's, it's, a, it's a much more commercialized version of higher education overall, uh, and intercollegiate athletics is just the most visible and vulnerable part of that. So how much power does an athletic director really have nowadays? Well, it varies by institution, but no athletic director operates in a vacuum. You can be certain of that. Uh, there is a, there's a context, if you will. There's a consensus that must be gained. Uh, there are certain people who have to be in the room, who have to nod their heads, if you will, uh, either in person or through their emissaries to agree that certain things need to happen. And when you get enough of those uh, heads nodding in, in unison, uh, then somebody else's head will roll. And that is what has happened at those other institutions I just mentioned. Of course, in all fairness, Minnesota's football coach left because of health issues. Uh, but the, all the dynamics that flow uh, around those programs uh, 
have a high level of, of expectation. And those are, those are uh, as I said, sometimes unrealistic, but they're always real. They may not be realistic, but they are, they are very demanding. Those, those boosters have a great uh, amount of say in what goes on, but uh, many, in most cases they don't have the final say, but they, their, their opinions count, no question about it. They always have and they always will. So we just had a really strange situation with LSU over the last few weeks where it seemed like Les Miles was going to be fired, and then there was kind of a you know 11th hour reprieve where now it seems like he's going to stay on as coach. Do you have any insight about how all that went down or what kind of things would have had to have pl- taken place for a reversal like that? Uh, no, I don't. Uh... And if I did, I couldn't comment on it uh, from from a factual standpoint. Uh, but it's uh, the, the whole issue of of those requirements, those expectations, uh, as we were just describing. In that, uh, there's nothing unique about what happens uh, at LSU or any other institution. It's it's the nature of the entire industry today. There never has been a period like 2015 uh, with with all of the change that has occurred. It's an extraordinary time right now. And so as you mentioned, uh, with regards to the revenue streams and football, of course, being the biggest one for most schools, football and basketball, basketball making just a little bit of money in football making, you know, as much as 90% of the money. When you're looking for a head coach, it's obviously really, really important. Um, that process, and let's take someone like McElwain, for example, what what are some of the factors that go into hiring a successful coach? Because nowadays, most of your coaches are not going to be successful. And so everyone's kind of looking for this, this top 1% guy. Are there some factors that, that you know, everyone's looking for, they're trying to find, or is it just really a, a totally opinionated matter? Well, it's, uh, it's like Pat Hayden, the athletic director at Southern Cal, was quoted today in the media. He said, Choosing a head coach is an inexact science, and that's an understatement. Uh, it is uh, There is a degree of science in it, but it's much more art than it is science. Trying to uh, grab the demographics, all the, all the analytics that go into it, those are, those are pertinent. But at the end of the day, somebody has to make a, uh, has to make a uh, I use the word advisedly, a gut-level decision about based on the criteria that we've been able to establish uh, for the position and what are uh, critical issues that we must effectively address in the next iteration of leadership here with our football coach, what kind of coach do we need, what are the qualities, skills, and experiences that that person needs to bring, let's let's continue talking about Southern Cal. Uh, They made the decision that they were going to go with a man of tremendous substance, uh, Clay Helton. The son, by the way, of a former Gator football player, Kim Helton, who himself was a head football coach in the business and uh, a man that I think highly of, so much so that when I was AD at Houston, I hired him as my head football coach. And he brought with him his son, Clay, who was uh, playing at Auburn at the time. He transferred to Houston, and he wound up playing quarterback for us at Houston. So uh, the people at Southern Cal – uh, decided that even though Clay was not a well-known name nationally, they felt that he had the substance and the capability 
He had the connection with the players at Southern Cal. He has the credibility. He knows the game. And that he will be able to sustain success uh, at Southern Cal. I think it's an excellent choice. Uh, Substance must win over style, ultimately. But style counts. And it just depends upon the venue as to where it counts uh, the most. But uh, that's an example of... uh, of, of an institution that made a substance-driven decision that I think will pay off for them uh, because Clay Helton has enormous uh, capability and uh, he knows the game and loves the game and will be able to uh, gain the best possible response from his student-athletes on the field with their effort. And that's, that's the critical element today is trying to get your, your student-athletes, your players, to perform at their optimal level. And uh, the coaches that can do that are the ones that have success. And, uh, you know, the coach who berates his players, who is abusive, who is, who is disrespectful, who is intransigent uh, uh, in, in, in his attitude toward his team, uh, that coach is, uh, is historically uh, uh, a, a dinosaur. That, that kind of coach will not make it today and in the future. So a coach like Clay Helton, because he's just the opposite of that, uh, is uh, is the choice at Southern Cal. And I love that choice, obviously. So speaking of, of dinosaurs, is the current student-athlete model going to be a dinosaur in the next five or ten years? Are we going to have a situation where pay-for-play and paying student-athletes will, will happen, do you think? Or do you think that's going to be something that we won't see in the near future? I don't know the answer to that, uh, uh, you know, factually. I can't, I can't predict exactly what will happen, but all I can say is that I hope that that does not happen because athletes, student-athletes as employees, that is no longer intercollegiate athletics. That's professional athletics, which has its place, professional sports, but it's not, it lacks what I describe as the nobility. Uh, the nobility of intercollegiate athletics is that it's, uh, it is the highest and, and best moral purpose and values are in place. And what we're looking for is the best interest of the individuals, not just short-term with victories on the field, but long-term with achievement over a lifetime. And that's really what intercollegiate athletics is. And when we start treating our athletes as employees per se, then we have crossed that line, and I think it's it's at our peril. I, I certainly hope that never happens. I like it that. might, but but if it does, let me say this: if it does, there will be some schools that will simply uh, declare that they're not going to participate at that level. I'm not a Notre Dame fan by any stretch of the imagination, but the president at Notre Dame earlier in 2015 made the, a statement with which I resonate when he said. If that occurs, Notre Dame will not be a part of that of that enterprise. Notre Dame will not will, will never have employees wearing our our colors to represent our institution because we want student athlete the student athlete ideals, and and I, I I praise that. I think that's exactly the model that must continue for the athletic program to have the nobility that uh, is required. Uh, for for the best interests of the young people. 
Yeah, it's certainly an, an interesting topic. And, and obviously, like you said, I definitely think if it happened, it would segment the athletic sphere and you'd have some teams that would go the European sort of professional soccer model where you have academies and, you know, you right. get these guys under 12. And then like then you mentioned, you'd have the other the other schools that would separate. So that that will be something to watch for sure. And then lastly, as we kind of funnel down to the end here of what's been a wonderful interview, there is a big game this weekend. Florida's sort of riding a downward momentum. Do you have any thoughts on the game this weekend? Do the Gators have any chance of winning it? Well, of course, you always have a chance of winning it. But in my judgment, uh, and I think, let me say this, that I think Coach McElwain has done a masterful job dealing with the Gator team this year. He and, he has, and, the, and the team, he and his staff and the team have overachieved beyond description. I mean, who would have ever thought they would have been 10-2? and two? I certainly would not have projected that based upon the, the, uh, the projections that we, that we saw. But uh, I think that the, the greatest likelihood is that, uh, that Alabama will win. But uh, if, if the chances of that happening are greatly increased if Alabama comes in overconfident. And who can predict that? But I guarantee you, uh, Lou, uh, Nick Saban is working very hard this week to burst any bubbles that may be of, in the uh, in the view of the players from Alabama. He'll be he'll be bringing them back to size, if you will, psychologically, and keeping their heads uh, size in proportion to the challenge in front of them. Because Florida is a good team; they're not a great team, but they and they have overachieved this year. Uh, the, the loss of the quarterback, Will Greer, was, uh, was, a traumatic, was traumatic uh, beyond description. And uh, so it's a, it's a very difficult challenge for him facing Alabama, but it's a tremendous tribute to every coach and every player that they are representing the East Division in, uh, in Atlanta. We, we salute them for that achievement. It's extraordinary by a team that was not expected to do that. So one last question here. We asked this of all of our guests. Now, you're a longtime Gainesville resident. Can you give us your favorite restaurant here in Gainesville? My favorite restaurant in Gainesville. Wow. Uh, yeah, let me, let me give me just one minute to think about that. Uh, I would say that it's probably Bonefish. All right, it's a new one for bone us. Fish, the, the, bone, the Bonefish restaurant is probably my favorite. Yeah, now, yeah and there's not a, for, not a ton for, of seafood. For regular, right. I'm sorry? I was going to say there's not a lot of seafood uh, you know, options available in Gainesville, so Bonefish is certainly a good well, choice if you like it's, seafood. It's good that for, for a regular for regular fare, I'd say that. For, for extraordinary special occasions, I'd say Embers. Okay. But you don't Good go choice. to Embers every day because that'll set you back. <laughs> <laughs> that'll set you back big time. But it's, if you have a special occasion, that's where you go, Embers. Perfect. Well, Bill, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We certainly enjoyed it. It's Bill Carr, former Florida player, athletic director, current head of Carr Sports Consulting. Uh, we certainly enjoyed it. Thanks again, Bill. All right, let's turn our attention to this week's game. It's SEC Championship Week. Normally a very exciting time, uh, maybe a little bit of a downer after this week. But let's talk about our opponent this week, Bama. They are, you know, I think number two in the college football playoff rankings. A really successful team this year. Let's talk about what are they good at? 
on offense and defense. Well, I'm going to press the pause button on that for just a second. I want to finish our thought. We have production assistant Josh in, in the studio with us today, and he handed us something when we were talking about the Florida State situation. So we'll put a little wrap on that. Dalvin Cook actually carried the ball the final 13 plays of the game. He had 33 yards entering the fourth quarter, finished with 150 yards and two touchdowns. The final 13 plays, again, went to him in that game. And that is actually from Seminoles.com with the article entitled, Dalvin Cook makes final push for awards. So I think definitely the answer was they were going for they were going for a little extra icing on the cake there for their own their own personal glory. And again, I have nothing wrong with that. I would expect us to do the same thing if we had a guy in the Heisman race, especially a guy like Dalvin Cook, who's really been everything to Florida so State. So another guy in the Heisman race. So now Derek we switch Henry. gears to a better guy. So yeah, really everything you think about Florida State, Alabama is better than them at everything. So you say, okay, great. We scored two points on them. Uh, probably could have scored maybe six, maybe 12, you know, at the high rate, maybe nine if we had a kicker that makes all three kicks. But Alabama, you know, let's look at the numbers. So they're 33rd on offense. That's better than Florida State. Uh, they're third on defense. That's better than Florida State. Bama holds most of its opponents to under 50% completion rate. Treon throws on his own a 50% completion rate. So factor in the Bama influence, where does that leave him? I don't know, 35% maybe. Um, Henry averages 9.7 yards a carry, 9.7 yards a carry. In the game against Florida State as a team, we averaged 3.3 yards a play, a play as a team. So you say to yourself, is there, you know, is there anything that we can do to win this game? It looks like no. Um, Bama's favored by 17 and a half points, maybe 17 by some sources. They opened at 12 on some sites, but the consensus is somewhere around 17 or 18. Alan, just a quick snapshot before we get further into the game. How high would that spread have to be before you actually bet on the Gators to cover it? I think it'd be need to be close to 30. I Just how pitiful we looked on offense. I think it's going to be nearly impossible to run the ball in Alabama. I mean, their front seven is enormous, and they're really technical, and they're just huge. I mean, you look at them, Ashawn Robinson, all of those guys are terrors on their own. You put them all together, and you saw what they did to Leonard Fournette. If they know you're going to line up and run it at them, it's almost impossible. So in some sense, I feel like we're going to have even less offensive offensive success than we did against Florida State. So that... Not that I think that Alabama's offense is so great. I think we could shut them down. And in a competitive game, I think that would happen. But I think, you know, Derrick Henry's also going to wear on us. You've seen Nick Saban. He he got the ball like 45 times last week. He's willing to give him a ton of carries, and I think that's going to wear us down. And and so, yeah, I see the score escalating. Like, if you gave us 1,000 quarters, I don't know if we could score 20 points on Alabama. Yeah, it feels like we couldn't. And, you know, you mentioned the the situation with Derrick Henry running the ball like a million times. And that is a change from what's gone on this year and in the past with Lane Kiffin. For my money, there's been a marked move back to sort of the older Saban football, the pre-Lane Kiffin days. They're running the ball a lot more. It's much more of a ball control offense. This is how Alabama used to win before Kiffin was there speeding them up. They turned the ball over much less. Um, so you see a lot of adjustments they've made week to week. I mean, wholesale changes, really, on this Bama team, identity-wise, from start to finish this year. The Gators, of course, have not really changed seemingly a whole lot. We get this question a lot, what's going on? Are they making changes? What changes could be made this week to give us a chance to beat Alabama, or even just to improve against our own benchmark? 
I don't know really what's out there in terms of our personnel, um, what we could do. I mean, we're not going to be a team that's able to come out and throw the balls, which is what you want to do is like, let's throw the ball, you know, 50 times against this team. Let's spread them out. Let's get guys like Powell and, you know, Callaway in space. I don't think this offense is capable of completing enough passes to really air it out. So then the other side is what I've mentioned before is basically you turn this into some kind of Georgia Tech-esque offense where you run the quarterback 20 times a game. They've had some guy- trouble in the past, you know, with guys like, you know, Johnny Football when the plays get really chaotic, you know, you see some people have some success. I, I would hope that that's at least an option for us. Um, otherwise, I don't know what we can do. Because if we're just going to – we can't line it up and run at them. There's a zero chance of that working, in my opinion. And we can't throw it. I don't know what else is out there other than going extreme quarterback run. What about you? Right, or like we've talked about, changing a quarterback entirely. But we know that's not going to be the case. So right. we're addressing in this segment, what could they do assuming Treon's going to take every snap? Well, you could do what South Carolina did against Clemson. They sort of came out, and if you watch that game, it was a noon game. Um, they, they literally threw everything they had at them. Farrow Cooper took like 12 snaps. He's their star receiver. He took 12 snaps as quarterback. They ran wishbone, jet sweep, a bunch of crazy high school veer formations. I mean, they were doing anything and everything to try to move the ball, and it worked. It actually worked really well. It was they a bunch a of stuff of they hadn't done all year long. Clemson had a hard time figuring out what was going on. They were basically trying to steal a few touchdowns early to get Clemson into a game. I think the mindset for Florida should be the same. However, I, I have no illusions that we're going to make any changes. I think McIlwain has an offense where guys are wide open, and they are. The truth is, they are wide open. We had guys running free against Florida State, which adds to the frustration under the under you know Will Muschamp. We didn't have a lot of games where guys were really just running free. So I think McIlwain thinks guys are running free, I'll get them the ball. I think the right thing is to think you have a guy who can't get them the ball and blow everything up. So assuming we don't make any changes at all, is there any blame that should be assigned to the coaching staff for maybe not being quote-unquote creative? I know that's kind of come out of the media this weekend is that McElwain's amazing, but not really creative when it comes to trying to do anything to make the team better. This is a tough one. Normally I would say yes in that you've got to be willing to make adjustments based on your personnel. and I, But I do think that's what McElwain would like to do. You've seen him whether he's at Bama or Colorado State, he doesn't just have a system and I'm going to plug people into it. He's willing to adapt and change. I just feel like maybe he, he this is the best thing he can do. And adjusting is not going to help. Now, I thought against Florida State, hey, you know what? Throw the kitchen sink at him. Every trick play you have. We didn't do a lot of that. Maybe he's saving that for this week. Maybe in his mind, he's not a guy who's been in the Florida, Florida State rivalry. Maybe he looks... That SEC championship game against his old mentor, Nick Saban. This is the week I'm going to go crazy with this. And I would understand that way of thinking. Now, personally, I'm like, you got to beat FSU. All right, come on. There's no chance to beat Bama. But he's probably not that thinking that way. Hopefully, we will empty the playbook, as they say, do every crazy thing possible, and maybe come up with something. What about you? Yeah, there's two sides of this coin. Like, the one side is that maybe McElwain, as a guy who's had so much success and he has, with running an offensive style that he assumes that it's going to work if he can coach a guy up correctly. And I think that's where he believes. 
which then the other side of the coin is, okay, well, if he believes that, is there something concerning about him not having a guy who can do it and maybe not seeing the issue? Which is that I don't care what Treon is doing in practice. I don't care how you create a play or you sit down with him on the film room. He cannot do it on game day. He has given you a large enough sample size to know that. I don't know if McIlwain can get himself to that point as a head coach to where he says, I have a player who can't execute anything I want to do. And to be fair to McIlwain, they have tried a lot of different things on offense. It looks like they haven't because you have a quarterback who doesn't throw the ball on time, throws the ball late, throws the ball soft, runs out of the pocket. Everything looks the same when you do that. They have tried a lot of different sets, different formations, different running sets. I mean, all sorts of everything you can imagine within the framework of an actual offense. So my thought is, if you're going to keep Treon in, the only thing you can do is blow it up, run him a million times, run zone read, run every trick play, throwback, double reverse counter you can run, and then you're giving up on your offense. And maybe McIlwain has too much pride in that. Maybe he can't do that. And, and look, in the future, like we said, this should hopefully be the only year we have that problem. A guy who can't pull the trigger and can't complete those passes. In which case, so far, what I've seen is a bunch of open receivers. That feels good. So... Yes, I would assign blame. I've already assigned blame to Mac. That doesn't mean I don't think he's doing a phenomenal job. But to me, I think tactically, there's a few things he could have pulled out of his toolkit to really end the season saying, you know what? I tried everything I could. And it was clear that none of it was going to work. And I don't think he's going to be able to say that. I think he could end the year. And if I have a one-on-one conversation with him, he would have to say, you know what? There were some things I didn't try. And I didn't think it was possible because of XYZ. But sometimes I think you just got to try it. Well, hopefully this will be a kitchen sink game. I mean, I would love to see just all the craziest in the world. And maybe McElwain's been holding, you know, a couple things in reserve. And I would understand that way of thinking 100%. So let's get down to prediction time. James, give me... <laughs> who's going to win, James? Yeah. And uh, what really, what do you think the score is going to be? How bad is it going to get out there? Right. I mean, I just immediately shook my head when you said that. I think that's why you're laughing a little bit. But I'm going to say in 1999, uh, the Gators lost to Alabama 34-7. to Something like that seems about right. Um, I'm going to go with 30-3. to And I don't know how we make a field goal, by the way. It's arbitrary. Like, maybe we're going to get another safety. I don't even know. But just scoring three points in a football game, by the way, seems ridiculous. There's so many ways that you can score, even against a team like Alabama. But, I, I mean, it's not good. I, I don't know. So 30-3, to I think 17 points is way too small of, obviously, a number. We, we've talked about these spreads each week, and we've kind of Maybe I should have been betting the Gators every week, but if I'm betting this week, there's no doubt that I'm taking Alabama to cover that spread. I mean, with that being said, is there a way that we can win? Sure. Yeah. We were we were within one score of Florida State for the majority of that game, playing as horribly as you could in the final third. And getting of the field. no like real big plays from the defense. Yeah. Nothing going on, no turnovers, missing field goals. And even then we were one score away. So in college football it's a very emotional game. Alabama, if they find themselves in a close game with us at the end, that they didn't expect, is going to be frustrated, angry they're not blowing us out, feeling like they're playing subpar. Nick Saban will be salty. Uh, we have nothing to lose. Our season is over. We're just planning to try to steal an SEC title. So it doesn't matter what happens to us right now at this point in time. It literally means nothing. So for us, we should be able to play free. We should be able to play kind of excited. Um, so there's a way that it can happen. I don't think it's going to happen, and I think that's because we don't have a technical skill to be able to do it. But it could happen, and it could be close. I think that's probably 5% of the scenarios that you're going to play out. You know, Maybe 60% they win by three scores, and the other percentage they beat is like a drum seems to be the situation. I think we're in a fragile emotional state right now. And we have a lot of guys that want to go to the NFL, and I know enough to know that when that happens, I don't care who you are or how good of a person you may be, 
you start to think about protecting yourself for the league. And that that's a that's a fine decision to make at this stage. Uh, if things turn against you, I think they'll come out with fire. But it's third quarter, fourth quarter, you're down three scores. Are you going to start laying your body on the line in a game where your offense can't score? Probably not. Can I blame you for that if you're Bullard or you're Vernon? Probably not. So, you know, that can go against you in a game like this too. What about you? Yeah, I would agree. A very similar score. We seem to be on the same page with this most weeks. But whether we end up right or wrong... I was going to say something like 35 to 10, and that would just be with some garbage time stuff. You know, I agree with you. I do. I can envision a scenario where, you know, Coker's throwing picks, which he has shown propensity to do fumbles. I mean, this is football. Anything can happen. This is still a talented team with a rugged defense that can keep the game close for a little while. And if that happens, who knows? Um, but I would, if I'm going to, pick the game and put a score here on tape, I would have to say, yeah, 34 to 10. Yeah, and this Bama team, that's the thing. Like, we're not – I don't want to make them out to be an indestructible force. They're not. No, not at all. They're an indestructible force when they're matching up with our team right now. That's, I think, what we're saying. Uh, Bama has weaknesses. You know, They have yeah. weaknesses. This could be a much different conversation if we had a team that had an offense right now or a quarterback. I think a I would very, pick us to win. I would absolutely pick us to win because I think Coker is a very average quarterback – I think their run game, while solid, would gain yards, but they have trouble scoring. I mean, they had a lot of trouble scoring against Auburn, who's a poor defense in the SEC. So this is a team that can be had. I hope I hope you don't mistake us by that. But it's just at this situation, you have to be honest with what our team is. You have to look yourself in the mirror and say, this is who we are. It's almost crazy to believe something different will happen. But with that being said, we were down one score with Florida State with a lot of with just you know with just a fourth quarter left. So you're saying so there's a chance. There is a chance. I'm not banking on it. I expect just like I expected this week to lose and lose ugly. But I would imagine the game could be close into halftime or close into the third quarter. That would not surprise me at all. And with that, I am very excited about today's guest. Uh, great Alabama guest, guy who's from Florida. We're gonna get his thoughts on the program. Uh, what he's up to now, and what he thinks about this weekend. Let's bring him on. Let's welcome to the program Andrew Zhao. He's an SEC championship winning quarterback for Alabama in 1999. He played all four years at Alabama, 98-01. to He is the current head coach of Montevallo High School in Alabama. It's actually uh, you know, pretty close to Birmingham, I believe, 30 minutes or so outside of Birmingham. And Andrew, you grew up pretty close to Gainesville, right? 30 minutes outside Gainesville in, in uh, Lake Butler, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Small town, right under the the uh, shadow of Ben Hill, basically. Well, Andrew, thanks for being on today. Uh, you know, it's SEC Championship Week, and we just wanted to ask, you know, what's it like to play in an SEC title game? Man, it's it's great. I, I tell you what, the the atmosphere is as big as it gets, especially here in the South, um, and then getting a chance to play against, when I was there, play against Florida in, in uh, the same scenario coming up this year. And it seems like Alabama and Florida are all, always in the SEC championship, which is great for for my home state and for the state of Alabama, which I now reside. But um, you know, playing a game like that is uh, so emotional. Um, you can ask a lot of coaches. Winning the SEC championship is just if it's not it's the closest thing to getting to the SEC. I mean, to the national championship because it's so hard to win it. Uh, SEC, everyone knows how tough it can be, um, and it's down now a little bit, but it's still tough because teams knock each other off from possibly playing in the SEC championship or going to the national championship. But the emotions in that game, and I played against some of my some of uh, my teammates from high school and good friends that played on other teams, but the emotions in that game and the atmosphere is 
is a is is it's like a rival game regardless of who you're playing in it. So uh, all the fans are very in tune and uh, and ready for the game, and of course the players and and coaches are too. But that game is so um, emo you get an emotional high from it, and uh, guys continue to uh, remember that throughout their lives, and win so- or lose. And I- definitely remember it yeah and obviously you you crushed florida 34 to 7 in that game so it was it was it was a very one-sided affair uh what's the week of preparation like is it different than than playing in the other games because of what's at stake yeah um i think it's um it becomes almost a a a i don't know like a a, a feeling of from the player standpoint um it's like a bowl game or actual championship game i i know um, from a coaching standpoint, they want to keep it the same as the same routine, but you also have to think about do we scale back um, uh, from the hitting because you've been do- you've been you've been doing that all year, and players have to um, some may hit the wall, especially the younger players. Um, but the preparation is basically the same. I think the hitting you scale it back a little bit uh, and, and try to make sure guys are healthy going into the game. I think a lot of guys understand uh, from a from the player standpoint is that this is a, a the next step and and now this is a chance to play in a national at a national level possibly getting to the national championship and now the playoffs but um the the preparation is pretty much the same for for coaches they try to keep everything the same because athletes are creatures of habit and they can't if anything sort of changes can throw them off and certainly Nick Saban seems to be the master of of preparation as Alabama's teams under his tenure have consistently played at a high level. One of those guys this year, Derek Henry, one of the guys you played with, of course, an all-time great in Sean Alexander. What are the maybe the, the similarities and or differences between those two great running backs? Man, I'll tell you, some of the moves that Derek does make are, are so Sean, Sean, um, Sean-like because uh, they give you this one step uh, and not really take a big blow. Derek gives blows. Uh, he gives a uh, more impact at the – at at the at the contact, and Sean was able to to slip some of those uh, those hits and uh, make those cuts in the hole, and it sort of glides through. And if you can, if you watch Derek uh, at times, he glides through the holes where you think he's just going to power through. Where he makes one quick step, and then he's off and running. Uh, both guys are deceptively fast. Uh, Sean definitely could run, and Derek in high school, I think he was running eleven one. In the hundred, so the guy can really run. At being that that size of a, a man is uh, is unheard of to be able to run that fast. And you look at this, their you know, how they protect the ball. Uh, I think, and then it, their workhorses. You can give the ball to Sean twenty five, thirty times a game, and then on top of that, you see the other night uh, Derek had it forty forty five plus. I think forty six, forty seven carries, something like that. I don't know, some crazy number. Um, but the similarity. Similarities are there, um, but Derek is so big and he's so tall, um, and, that, and that's where the separation, I think, it is, is for the most part. Um, but sort of like a throwback runners, man. And Sean was always always called him the throwback guy because of how he dressed. But uh, some of those guys you can definitely count on, and the confidence you can tell that Derek has, Sean always had. So there have been a few changes recently in the Alabama offense under Lane Kiffin. You know, as you watch them play and you watch how he deals with quarterbacks and what they're trying to do schematically, what do you notice that they do well? Uh, I think it gets the ball to the athletes uh, and getting it out of the quarterback's hands. 
Um, once Coker makes the decision to get the ball out of his hands and get it to Risley and some of the other guys, he does a pretty good job with it. And Darius Stewart, um, and let the let the let the running back turn around, and hand the ball off to him. I think uh, the biggest thing I think Lang does is he has one guy that he will get the ball to from 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 outside the box, and that is your receiver who is the guy. And before you have Cooper, and and now you have it's become Risley. So um, if they continue, uh, I think what he's done, and, and, and things in the past has been multiple guys you had. Um, before that, you had Julio and Ingram and all those guys who it was different guys that got the ball to. Um, but if it's going to be a star receiver uh, or a star guy, uh, Lane's going to find that guy, and that guy's going to have a great season. You look what really he's doing, and now you look at the possibility of having a great running back and getting a hat on a hat is something that uh, Saban's always been big on regardless of who's been his coordinator. He gets a hat on a hat on the offensive side of the ball, and everyone does their job. And then your running back has to make one guy miss. Henry does a heck of a job of that, and that's why they're succeeding right now. And so obviously Alabama and Florida have a long history. Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts as a player and a guy who grew up in Florida uh, right near the campus here? What are your thoughts on – Florida now as an Alabama guy what are the thoughts of Alabama people on Florida is it a team that they feel like they're kind of a rivalry with or is it sort of just a team from the east that they occasionally play uh I think it's it was a rivalry uh I believe for a guy like myself who was from there and grew up there and and, and knew all about Florida um but I think from an overall standpoint I think the the rivalry is there when both teams can compete at a high level um and and do it consistently a few years ago, you had Urban Meyer, who was getting Florida there um, ever, uh, as, as much as anyone, and then Saban came in, and it became that rival game that you knew. They played They played once or twice um, in, in the seasons, in regular seasons, and then they meet up in the SEC championship games, which were always good, and it became it become that uh, – when, when Tebow was there, it became that game that, hey, look, we, have, we know we're going to play Florida in the SEC championship, and – and Florida sort of could bank on basically Alabama coming out of the West. But um, I see it as a rival. I see it as the best from the East will play the best from the West. And I think it, we always knew, or uh, over here in Alabama, we sort of figured that hey, it's going to be Florida uh, for the most part. Uh, if someone sneaks up and, and is in there like Missouri has the last few times, uh, it's all that. Now that's a surprise. But the consistent rival or someone coming out of that area would be Florida. And um, it, it, it becomes when you play with guys in high school, that's how the rival becomes uh, a little bit bigger. But uh, I would say it is a rival, and I think uh, it's not as big as the Auburn-Alabama game um, or some of the games we play over here in the West against each other because they're so close. But coming out of the East, you would say it have to be um, have to be Florida. It used to be Tennessee, but we play them every every uh, year. So, um, But now I think if you're talking about a championship rival – in the SC championship, but it would be Florida, and I will consider it a rival in some way. And, and Andrew, switching gears for a second and talking kind of about the psychology of being a player and the reality of being a 19- or 20-year-old, um, Florida has had, obviously, its fair share of interesting quarterback drama this year. But what I want to I want to ask now with your you know your background as a player and as a coach, what's it like to be on a team when a main guy, whether it be a quarterback or a running back, is really struggling? Um, are the players talking about that? I mean, I know you hear in the media that everyone says, "Hey, look, we believe in this guy." But what's really going on behind the scenes when you have when you have a guy that's really struggling 
to uh, to do his job well. Yeah, I, I think it, it works uh, a few ways it can go. It can be you, you have leaders on the team that will pull a guy to the side and say, hey, look, we got your back, you're for you. Or be that same group of guys, hey, look, I, I stay a little while longer. Let's get some reps. And, and not so much come down on the guy because we're all pulling in the same direction, you would hope. But, hey, look, let's stay and get a few more reps. Let's figure this thing out and get it done. Um, and, and then there's the, the silent type where guys may not say anything. Guys just want to do their job, and they want the coaches to handle it. Um, and then in secret, they'll say, hey, look, I, we got your back. Or, you know, they'll hang out with guys, and you know that sometimes it's, it's the, it goes unsaid that, that I got your back. Or it goes unsaid that, hey, you know what, the, the young guy needs to come, the next guy needs to step up. Um, and I think what happens is you run into that problem where this guy has been – he's had all this hype coming out of high school, and then when he gets to that, that level or gets to that, that moment, he doesn't perform. Well, a lot of times we just push a guy out there and just keep him out there until he, he breaks through. Uh, that can hurt a guy um, or it can help him. But uh, if, it, if it's not figured out now, I mean, you know, this world, and especially in SEC football, is what can you do for me right now? And what will you do for me tomorrow? Not what have you done for me um, in the past? So guys need to understand that. And, and as, a, as a quarterback myself, I know there were times I struggled and there were guys that had my back or there was guys that didn't say anything, but still I knew they were there for me. And there may have been guys, and I, and I did not see it, but there may have been guys, hey, look, I'm for the next guy to come in um, and play. And all we want to do as an athlete is win the game. Because um, I can remember guys saying, they didn't care who was back there when Tyler and myself was in there, they just want to win the game. And myself, too, heck, I want to win, but I want to be a part of it. Um, but it, it takes you, you staying after and you understanding that, hey, if you're that vital to the game, that vital to the team, that you you got to get it done. Because I think in over here in Alabama, the hardest jobs in, in the state of Alabama is being the head coach of Alabama and the uh, quarterback at Alabama. So it's, uh, it can, it, it, it's a tough job, but you got to have support, and I think it comes from the top. If a coach has that – that coaches that I mean that player's back, and that player feels that hey, coach Coach Mac has my back, and or Coach Saban has my back. That player will be able to play at a higher level than to being unsure of himself, um, or, or unsure that coaches have you know that they're behind him. All right, Andrew, let's talk about this week. So the Gators are currently seventeen point underdogs to Alabama. Do you think that number is too low? Do you, are you expecting a blowout here this week? How do you think the game's going to go? If Greer was still there, I would expect this thing to be a shootout somehow. And uh, maybe it's the, the, the Bama boy in me now, but Sam Bama pulls it off somewhere late, and maybe I'm just being a homer on that one. But um, I, now looking at Florida play the other day up against a, um, I say a subpar Florida State team that hadn't played well this year, or they have some moments that they play well, and as well as Florida's capable of playing with Greer back there and watching, um, is it Trey, uh, the kid there now? Uh, I don't, I don't see that game being you know close. Um, I hardly ever want to predict games because when I do, we normally lose. But this game could be pretty bad, man. Um, just watching uh, the the inconsistency at quarterback, um, him dropping back and not knowing where to go with the ball at times. Um, and and then again, Florida State's defense is pretty tough too. So um, I, I don't I don't I, I don't see it being 17. I, I think that's a little little low. I think it'll be 20 plus. Um, and if Florida doesn't doesn't show up defensively, it could be 
um, pretty bad. I think that's the only thing um, that Florida has hanging can hang on right now is having a stout defense and those guys coming play and run around like even like they did the other day against Florida State. Just they, you know, blow blown assignment here and there can can get you can get you behind, but. Uh, their defense will be their strong point offensively. I don't know how they're going to get get up points. Um, special teams somehow maybe, but defensively, and I'll tell you this, defensively, if they can make some, some things happen on their end and Coker uh, doesn't get rid of the ball, he may run around with it a little bit. Uh, you know, he, They can put us in some bad situations, but offensively for Florida, I think that's their weak point right now. And uh, I think their defense could probably keep them in the game, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to hang my hat on it. All right, well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on today. That's Andrew Zhao, championship-winning quarterback for Alabama. Uh, really appreciate the time. All right, let's wrap up this week's show by bringing on our recruiting expert, Austin. He's our production assistant, faithful production assistant. He's done this once before. We Austin's recruiting roundup. Yeah, right, the recruiting roundup. Here we are. It's been a lot of a lot of things going on the past 48 hours, unlike our play on the field. A lot of positive things going on in recruiting right now. Austin, what's what's the big news right now? All right, well, uh, the big news would obviously be quarterback Felipe Franks committing, uh, previously committed to LSU and uh, decommitting, I would say, five days ago and then committing uh, yesterday was uh, huge, obviously, because as we saw on Saturday, we're going to need help at quarterback next year. So he's going to be an early enrollee. Uh, do, right. Do the staff feel confident about holding on to that commitment? even though Les Miles is still at LSU? Yeah, I think that if if he wouldn't have decommitted, um, they would feel a little less confident. But he went ahead and decommitted on uh, you know five days ago, and then he came out and made the decision after they announced they were going to make you know Les My- or keep Les Miles around. So I think he's pretty firm on it, and he's got to make his mind up if he's not because you know he's got to early enroll in three weeks, basically. And Austin, what does this mean for Jacob Eason, the Georgia five-star quarterback who's just ahead of him in the rankings? Does that officially end our right. recruitment of him? Um, you know what? I'm not sure. I've actually talked to a few people that think that we're still going to give him a phone call. I'm sure the phone call has already been made. But, you know, we're approaching a dead period, so um, which means, you know, they can't talk to recruits until almost signing day. At that point, so you've got to – if they're going to make a move on Eason, they're going to have to do it. But I would say that Eason's pretty much out of the picture at Florida. All right, we know there's a fun story about McElwain taking a ride with a certain recruit, a kicker. Right. <laughs> what was going right. on there? Yeah, you know, Eddie Pinheiro, he was uh, in town for the game this weekend. He's a kicker, committed to the University of Alabama, number one kicker in the nation at the time, I believe. And he uh, – was riding around with McElwain, and, you know, it's a funny photo on Twitter, McElwain throwing up the peace sign, I believe. Um, yeah, I think that Pinero is definitely a priority at this time for Florida. As you saw, the kicking game on Saturday is just abysmal at the time. And you can't – you know, that that's where Florida's really lacked is, you know, special teams has been bad, you know, other than punting. Um, and, you know, not a lot of fire at that right now. So I think this kicker will definitely, you know, help if we could get Pinero. All right, any other news, anything else so, going on with with the Gators and recruiting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you got Mac Wilson, who's the number one linebacker in the country, five-star. Uh, he's from the state of Alabama. He has uh, said Florida is his favorite the whole time. Now, he's committing this Friday, uh, December 4th. And, uh, you know, they moved up 
he moved up the date from signing day. So this Friday you'll know something about Mac Wilson, which linebacker is definitely something I could see Florida taking a lot of this class. Also, he, uh, pretty big news today, Javon Myers, uh, cornerback, decommitted from Florida. As you know, he's the half-brother from wide receiver target Nate Craig Myers, which you know, Florida is going to go after a huge amount of wide receivers this uh, this off season. Uh, and Nate Craig Myers is a four-star wide receiver. He he's he's kind of reminds me a little bit of Callaway, not too not the tallest guy, but he's got he's explosive. So I could definitely see something there. And then you had uh, Brian Burns in town this weekend, who is between Florida and Georgia. He can't decide uh, at the time, but he said that even with Georgia firing Mark Rick, he's still considering both schools. So we'll see how that works out. So, Austin, all in all, thus far, would you say our recruiting class has met your expectations, exceeded your expectations, or failed to live up to them for the upcoming class? Well, you know, I'd say that right now they're going uh, pretty – I think things are going pretty well. You see the offensive performance on Saturday, you know, and, and then the next day you wake up and you see they get three offensive commits. So the coaching staff is definitely doing something right. And I think that you have to look at the body of work that they've put in going and getting these guys. These aren't, you know, low-level guys either. These are pretty good recruits, and they're doing a great job so far. And if they close as strong as they did last year on a couple more guys that they have targeted, then it'll be a great recruiting class. And I think Florida, you know, going forward, 2017 is the year that I think that these players will be in and be ready to go, and that could be a great year for Florida. Well, he is he is Austin Ryer. This is Austin's recruiting roundup. As always, Austin, thanks for the knowledge. Thanks for keeping us up to date. Thank y'all so much. All right, James. So we've got a little bit of the season left. The college football playoffs are upon us. Seems to be mostly set. Uh, seems to be Alabama if they win is in. Clemson is in if they're if they win. Oklahoma seems to be in. That last spot seems to maybe going to come down to the Big Ten Championship. All right, give me a prediction. Iowa or Michigan State? I'm going to take Michigan State. I picked Nebraska to beat Iowa last week. It didn't work out. The game was close. I think Michigan State with Connor Cook takes that game. I think they take that game by at least two scores. And Michigan State's magical season continues And if, if they make it into the playoffs there. All right, well, another great week, James. As always, another great week on the podcast because it gives us a chance to discuss – I feel like the uh, what happened over the weekend, it's kind of like a, a nice panacea for me. I don't know how it is for you, but I get to talk about it, and I'm like, you know what? I feel better now. Cleansing. I talk Cleansing about it. After yeah, I feel, I feel purified. So here we are. Uh, to those of you that will be going to the game this weekend, my hat's off to you. Best of luck. Godspeed yeah. in Atlanta. As I've said before, I saw that movie in 2009 already. I don't need to see it again. Let's yeah, I've been there. I've been there for a lot of experience, uh, bad experiences at Alabama and in Atlanta. But best of luck to you. It will basically be a Bama home game. I uh, want to thank Ryan Vasquez for getting our guest, uh, Andrew Zhao. Fantastic. And then Guillermo Diaz for bringing in Bill Carr. Appreciate that, guys. Thank you very much. As always, you can catch us on any podcasting app, on iTunes, online, through the link. We appreciate you listening. We love delivering it. We will be back next Monday with a season wrap-up, Heisman preview, and a bowl season preview. So we'll see you next Monday. 